Hello and welcome to these audio recordings from Project Echo, Westwick PHN Hub, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Echo Network Series. Series 3, Session 4. It's Thursday, the 29th of October, 2020. So welcome to our final session of the paediatric mini-series, our second paediatric mini-series that um, is titled Back to School and Early Learning in Regional Victoria part four. And so this morning we'll wrap up our part four PEDS mini-series with a presentation showcasing an innovative model of specialist multidisciplinary team-based care. Uh, well, we have had amazing news this week with the announcement um, and with and an, of an end to lockdown in Melbourne flanked by two days of zero cases. And these were the first days of zero cases in over 140 days. And what an amazing achievement. Melbourne will soon be moving in step with us from November the 9th. So onwards, the pandemic has proven to be a big disruptor, challenging us to change the way we provide services and rapidly adopt new practice. So as we pause and reflect upon the service landscape ahead, I'm delighted to bring you and share with you this morning uh, a model of care worth considering. Now, Billy Garvey and uh, Rachel Robinson have been coming along as ECHO participants for most of the week since the first series, and all the while they've been engaged in uh, the region developing an innovative model of specialist accessible paediatric care in the Wimmera. And so this morning we'll hear about how the disruption of this pandemic has seeded new opportunities in the rollout of this model. Um, but before we bring you that, I'm going to share with you our agenda uh, and so I'm pleased to share the work they've been doing in our region. So as always, it's a packed schedule. So disruption and innovation, considering new models of team-based care. Um, Kate Graham will kick off this morning with an update on health pathways. Um, I'm delighted to again introduce you to Karen Ahrens to talk a little bit about post-COVID screening tips. Um, as you recall, I've been asking if anyone's got any cases and if anyone's seeing long COVID. I haven't yet heard of any cases and I think this session will work really well if we make it an interactive and if we can really bring um, those health pathways to life through the sharing of cases. So I'm going to wait on that series to see if we can um, get some cases coming forward. So please get in touch. We'd love to hear. Um, but Karen's going to seed some um, food for thought about uh, you know, how we might seek, potentially proactively seek those cases. Um, public health update and preparedness advice by Associate Professor Deb Friedman um, and then our key presentation with Billy Garvey. He'll kick off some case vignettes and discussion and then we'll wrap it up with a PHN update by Linda Govan, Senior Manager of Ballarat and Goldfields. We'll talk about screening cancer, uh, cancer screening update and as always finish off with our rapid five answers uh, about infectious diseases. So everything that's in the chat by 8.20 will be answered. As always, our learning outcomes are to engage in a community practice and put policy and guidelines into practice, consider emerging models of care with a focus on continuing care provision, I guess is the theme this morning. Um, thank you, Gemma. And um, also a quick thing about our etiquette, just to remind those of you who might not have tuned in in a little while, we've got a new thing happening. Um, if you could send any questions about infection control to Questions for Deb. So we've re renamed Natalie Questions for Deb. She'll field all those questions that are outside of our key theme being paediatric models of care. So anything infection control related, send it to Nat and she'll shoot it to Deb in time for that rapid fire questions at the end. So thank you very much. Um, with that, I'd now like to hand over to Kate Graham. Thank you, Kate. Morning everyone, it's such a good week and it's so good to know that there aren't any cases in regional Victoria anymore as of yesterday as well. Um, so in terms of health pathways, uh, this week we've had an update to the PPE guidance from DHHS. Um, in terms of mainly the changes for when you use N95 masks, there's a lot more guidance on there about 
not needing to have sort of a saturation of um, exposure to probable or confirmed cases in terms of when you should use masks. And also in terms of suspect cases, um, that is also defined there as well. So we've added all that into the pathways in the PPE dropdowns, and that's across all of the pathways. Um, in terms of infection control, there is just something that I wanted to flag that's come up as a result of the blood glucose monitoring issue in um, quarantine, hotel quarantine. Um, there was an issue flagged with the use of blood glucose monitoring. Um, that was mainly related to a Lancet device that while the actual Lancets were changed, um, the device itself wasn't. However, internationally, there have been outbreaks of hepatitis B that were linked to just monitors being reused across patients. So just a reminder for everyone in practices to have practice protocols about cleaning and disinfecting monitors between patients. Um, and ensuring that your monitors are ones with test strips that are removed and they're not ones with continuous test strips. Um, the other things that I wanted to flag, um, particularly given uh, Linda's update a bit later, are our cancer pathways. Um, we've got optimal care cancer pathways and we really want to flag the importance of continuing to manage those patients at the highest level. We've also updated a lot of the resources in the long COVID pathways. Um, particularly, we've got some education resources in there now, which are great to give you a bit of an overview. The other group that's um, starting internationally to become a bit more recognised in terms of long COVID risk is the survivors in aged care residences. So, and particularly given that they're a really difficult group in terms of linking into rehabilitation services and allied healthcare, um, when a lot of those services still aren't visiting aged care, um, they're a particular group that may be at risk. So that's all from me for this morning. So I'll hand back to you, Bianca. Thank you, Kate. And welcome, Karen. I'll uh, invite you to also introduce yourself again and let us know where you're coming from. Thank you. Sure. Thanks, Bianca. Good morning, everybody. Um, yeah, so Karen Owens is my name. I'm actually um, a GP from the Macedon Rangers, have been for a long time, which makes me somewhat of an interloper. But... Um, the last six months I've been working with Jerawara Health as their clinical lead, so Bacchus Marsh Hospital. Um, and the program that I've been involved in there has been the COVID positive program for um, the hospital in the home. So basically we've looked after, oh, we were doing a count just the other day, just over 400 patients with co who were COVID positive um, who have been well enough to stay home but not well enough to, or still needed monitoring. So either symptomatic or moderate risk or various other factors that have meant that we've admitted them to hospital in the home. Um, and I was chatting to Bianca just yesterday about a presentation that Kate and I did earlier, Kate Graham and I did earlier this week on long COVID. Um, and so this is just a, to whet your appetites and get you thinking about some of the cases that maybe you'll bring forward. Um, so I've got th three, three take home messages that came away as important now from the, the presentation that we did a few nights ago. The, the first one was um, to think about how you will recruit your long COVID patients. How, how do you know who they are within your practice? Do you have a register? Are you contacting them? Um, what's the, is it, you know, something like the diabetes register? Do you, do you have a similar model in that regard? Because a lot of these patients have gone through without any con contact with any clinician along the way. They've been diagnosed at a 
pop-in clinic, the results may or may not have come to you. So that's the first thing just to think about within the practice setting. Um, that then leads on to when you do see these patients or source out these patients, what are you talking to them about? And obviously that'll um, take up most of the speech. Uh, presentation that Bianca, Bianca was talking about in a few weeks, the nuts and bolts of that. But the specific thing I'd be thinking now is to ask the question, are you well? And then probing in on that. Because when I rang many of these patients back recently to see how they were traveling, the majority said, we're fine, we're fine. And then when I probed deep, more deeply, so are you short of breath still or are you getting tired? They said, oh, we're missing, I'm missing a day of work a week because I'm tired oh, well, you know, I got my clearance from DHHS, so that equates in their mind sometimes to I should be well. And so sometimes that information is not forthcoming. So that's really important. So specific questions. Have you missed any work as a result of your symptoms? Um, do you have shortness of breath or fatigue? Because they're the standout ones that are the ongoing long COVID symptoms. Um and then obviously take it from there and more gems to come, I'm sure, in a few weeks. Um, and then the last thing that came out, which was just to reiterate Kate's um, discussion about health pathways and the value of tapping into that, because it's not something that we, particularly in this region, that, has, that there's been a lot of cases. So that it probably isn't fresh in your mind as to, well, what, what's next? What do I do next? And those health pathways are fabulous for that. Um, and this is going to be a long, long journey. It's probably, as we were talking the other night, Kate, it's probably going to be an endemic um, condition like flu season each year. So you will need to equip yourself with some basic tools to manage these patients. I think that's probably it, Bianca. Yeah, thank you so much, Karen. And thank you for whetting our appetite. So we will um, come back in a few weeks. We're going to spend some time planning that and hopefully podcasting it as well to um, give everyone a bit of background before we launch in. Um, so thank you very much. Um, okay, I'll hand over to you now, Deb, for our COVID update. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, so I guess, you know, you all know where we're sitting in Victoria. There's only 80 active cases in the entire state and all targets that were set in terms of number of cases per day and mystery cases have been met. So our average number of cases per day over 14 days was 2.7 as of yesterday. And there were only three cases of unknown source over an entire fortnight. So, so that puts everybody into a really good position. So I wanted to give a quick review of I guess what we've done in Barwon Southwest over the last several months and to talk about preparation for the future. So we traced um, nearly 500 cases over two months. And as you know, each case has somewhere between a minimum of 10 close contacts. And especially if they're from a workplace, sometimes it could be hundreds of close contacts for a single case. We traced all of those and what we found was that 5% of all of those cases were of unknown source, which is fairly low and is a positive thing when you look at, I guess, regional Victoria. Um, when we drill down into the source of acquisition, what we found is that nearly 48% of them were acquired within the household or what we've called social slash household. So it means either the people who reside in your household or the people who visited your household. So those were the, the most risky interactions that people have. And then the remainder were a variety of different workplaces that caused outbreaks. Um, 
I was asked by um, Michael Axton's about our team capacity. So I guess I'd just maybe elaborate on that um, a little bit. We've got a very large team and we're extremely well resourced. Um, our CEO has sort of given us an essentially unlimited budget to expand. We have full-time administrators. We have full-time um, IT people. We've got junior doctors. We've got infectious diseases. We've got a large team of contact tracers. And when we were busy, we worked 13 to 14 hour days, seven, seven days a week. Um, on a busy day, we would have 30 staff there simultaneously tracing cases, all of them who are now quite experienced. Um, on our busiest days, when we were dealing with several simultaneous large outbreaks, we could get up to 30 new cases a day. And on some of those days, almost all of them were non-English speaking, means that everything took double as long because of the use of phone interpreters. Um, we... From the experience that we've had and from the large team that we have trained, we can double our team numbers. So we've, um, on a daily basis now, we've got a smaller team in person on the ground with no cases to trace, but improving systems, um, looking at data and kind of taking learnings away from what we've done. But we know that we could easily double our team within hours. So if we were given an outbreak, we can call in additional staff very quickly. Um, and in terms of the whole Barwon Southwest region, given that we have partners in other health services like Warrnambool, but I know that we could always, and we have um, liaised closely with Colac, especially the hospital in the home service in Colac for managing cases out there. I think that we could handle hundreds of active cases within the region. And one of the things that we've done within our monitoring system is that we have a stratification system based on risk and based on the age of people. And that determines how many phone calls they get and how closely we need to monitor them. So if you're a low risk, close contact, you don't get called every day, but you get called about every third day. And if you're a low risk case, you get called once a day. But if you're a high risk case, you get pulse oximetry, heart rate, blood pressure monitoring remotely, and you get two phone calls a day with 24-hour nurse on call. So we stratify people at the outset, and I think that that's been good in reducing how many phone calls we need to make to the sort of 20-year-old who's pretty well, but increasing the support that we can provide to people who may be isolated um, or who may have risk factors for having a poorer outcome. Um, I guess... In terms of the rest of regional Victoria, we've got teams everywhere now. And although their capacity is not as great as we have in Barwon, we've really shared the resources around. So Barwon did a lot of the work for Kilmore and Shepparton um, because we were able to do that because we didn't have any cases here. Um, now there's new metropolitan teams that have been stood up. So Austin, Western, Monash, which are basically have been set up mirroring our setup in Barwon and we've trained them at those three locations. And then they've supplemented by, I guess, their supplementary teams at hospitals like the Alfred. Um, and they're kind of going to announce where the others are. So there's going to be a lot of teams that are capable of doing tracing. All of the hospitals have already been doing tracing of internal cases, so their own staff and their own patients, but now they'll be doing more within their own local 
postcodes and local government area. So where are we heading now? Um, what are what does the future hold for us? So I see three options. Um, I'll tell you what I see them as, but if you find if you think of a fourth, please do put it in the chat and we can consider it as, a, as an option. So um, the first option is um, that it's very quiet here, like South Australia, Western Australia or Queensland, with the default situation being no cases. This could certainly be the case for regional Victoria, but given that Melbourne's opening up, given that, that we'll have international arrivals into Melbourne and given how easily things spread from metropolitan Melbourne to regional Victoria, I think that option number one is reasonably unlikely. And I don't know if you saw, there's been a little bit of argy-bargy in the news about why some of the other states don't take international travellers and, you know, there's a good reason why they don't take them because they don't want to. So that that's option number one. Option number two is that we're more like New South Wales with low levels of infection which could easily spread to regional Victoria, indicating that we need to be agile in our approach to managing these clusters and outbreaks. I think this is the most likely scenario given international arrivals. Um, what's the third option? The third option is a third wave due to some major breaches. What are the possible major breaches? What would they be given kind of what we know now? So one is, is it international arrivals? I think it's unlikely to specifically spread from international arrivals, as in hotel quarantine now is so tightly regulated that I doubt that would be the case. However, as we have events upcoming within Melbourne, we're going to have people arriving for the Australian Open and we're going to have cricket. And the question is, is there going to be spread from some of those people flying in? Really, you know, we... Everybody should be held to the same standard and everybody should be isolating for the same period of time. Is that going to be what happens? Is there going to be, you know, possibilities that that doesn't occur? So that would be a concern. The other is, I guess, breaches in aged care, which are entirely possible still, but I don't think enough to cause a third wave. They'd be enough to cause outbreaks in aged care, but not enough to cause a third wave. Could there be breaches in hospitals that spill out largely into the community? Very unlikely. Um, what about interstate arrivals? Is it possible that we'll have people coming in? Yes, that is possible, but very unlikely to cause a third wave. So where do I sit? I sit somewhere around option number two is what I think to be most likely. But I think between now and Christmas, that's kind of about two months, we're going to know where we're sitting so what do we need to do over December, January? What is our task and what do we need to have available? So I guess the first thing is testing widely available, especially coastally, because that's where people are going to go. But that doesn't mean that they won't also be going to the Grampians and other areas. So availability of testing in all these places, whether it be Torquay, Anglesey, Ocean Grove, Apollo Bay, um, all of those things are important. We need to have the contact tracing team ready, which we do have. We need to look at the logistics for cases who would need to isolate but were only planning on coming down for a week and then they get found to be infected. So the question would be, do they go into hotel quarantine locally? Do they get transported home? How do we do that? All of the, we already have some hotel quarantine set up in Geelong, 
but there's a body of work being done now centrally at the department looking at setting up other regional options for hotel quarantine. Um, and then I, I think the really important one is GP ready, readiness, especially in areas where holiday makers go to for assessment of people. I think, you know, ensuring that we have the testing available is important, but ensuring that there's the capacity to at least consider people as being at risk and to um, be able to assess people as needed. And then the last thing I want to say, just in response to what Kate Graham was saying before about PPE um, guidance, um, there will be a little bit more coming out in about the next three weeks. Um, the reason for that is that we're just waiting for a submission to go through Cabinet right now. And if it goes through Cabinet, what we're hoping the PPE guidance might look like, like the um, change would be that if you are in an area, so local government area, where you've got really high numbers of cases, that may mean that you wear N95 respirators for every suspected case. Whereas when you're in a very low risk area, currently for suspected low risk cases, we would wear surgical mask. So that would be the essential difference between a low risk area and a high risk area. The rest of the PPE remains the same. The reason for that is that, as an example, there's not been, for example, both at Barwon and if I look at Warnable and stuff like that, there's never been a person that walked into ED that was tested for COVID that ended up having COVID. Every person that's been admitted in those places was known ahead of time. So it's the same in Geelong. They, we knew they were sick. We, we brought them in or they called up and it was all planned every other person who's ever come through the emergency department has been negative. So we've got a 0% chance that a suspected case that you see in ED or anywhere else ends up being positive. As opposed to that, at the heaviest time of the pandemic in Melbourne, within Royal Melbourne, certainly the Western, they would have more than 10% of cases walked in off the street with symptoms that actually did have COVID. Different kettle of fish, for a different location and therefore different suggestions with regard to what PPE is most appropriate. And I think um, that's probably all I need to say. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Deb, and some um, lovely comments in the chat. Good to hear about uh, use of interpreters. We often don't hear about that in the media. Thank you for that picture of the behind-the-scenes work. Uh, no one sees the hard work that goes on there, but it must have been inspiring to have 30-plus people there on the weekend. Um, and um, uh, that uh, it was great to see your team mentioned on the 7.30 report as a gold standard in contact tracing. So we have been agreed, incredibly lucky to have your expertise in the region. And I want to particularly say that, you know, we're on session tw 27 now. And, Deb, I know your role has changed has changed incredibly over this time and the responsibilities and pressures have uh, you know absolutely increased thank you for being with us every Thursday morning to provide us this excellent source of truth so yes thank you thank you all right lovely so I'm really pleased now to head hand over to Billy Garvey um, to let us know about how you've uh, you know how you've traveled with this model of care through these disruptions and and some of the opportunities um, this perhaps has afforded I think uh, you know I've probably stopped being an optimist through this time um, but I do look for silver linings and I think that this model um, potentially is a lovely silver lining so I look forward to hearing from you thanks Billy thanks Bianca so my name is Billy, I'm a paediatrician at the Royal Children's and it's been really great to sit in on Thursday mornings and listen to all the work that everyone's doing. Um, 
I'm speaking today about some work that we're doing in the Wimmera Southern Mallee. Uh, and I'm really hoping to generate a bit of discussion. I've, I'm talking about a model, but also I've got a couple of cases and it'd be really nice to see what you guys think about them. The one thing that this project has taught me is that um, I actually learn more than I teach by working with a lot of people in the community. And it's been a really wonderful part of it. The people probably know the Wimmera Southern Mallee region of Victoria, it's 20% of the land mass, less than 1% of the population of Victoria. The reason that um, we've been interested is because of the outcomes that kids have in terms of their health development and wellbeing and um, being lower than the state average. And so that's been um, an interest for us to go in and see and talk to the communities. Rachel Robinson, who's on the call, has been the main person from uh, MCRI and the RCH doing that work. But I was really lucky to start going out in 2018 and talking to the community. Um, since the start of this year, we've been running a model, which I'll explain to you um, how it looks like, but we're still trying to figure out how we can best do this model. It's gonna look like it's just a telehealth model for rural uh, centres. It's not. I think that what I get to do as part of this project is the best medicine I get to practice. Um, and I'll explain why. Please feel free as well to put questions in the chat and I'm more than happy to be interrupted as well. So the reason I care about this is because th this is um, some data that's a couple of years old now, but looked at um, practices all over Australia will I children go and see a paediatrician? And this was in outpatient settings of hospitals, community health centres and private practice. And you can see that of the top 10 reasons, what uh, eight of them fall into what we call neurodevelopmental paediatrics. These are things that I'm really interested in uh, because of how much they impact functioning beyond just the child's breathing or um, skin condition or anything like that. The Lawrence report, uh, the second report on child and adolescent mental health demonstrated that, you know, 14% or one in seven of kids in our communities aged four to 17 meet criteria for a mental health condition, which is pretty scary. And we know that 50% of adult mental health begins at prior to age 14. So my interest is really in how can we catch these kids a little bit earlier and put in some support and evidence-based practice about around early intervention. The other reason I'm interested, and I might get a chance to talk to the group today, is that when we look at these problems and we look at what kids start um, school entry with concern, there's so much overlap. So we know that 4% of kids start school with a current diagnosis of uh, a condition, might be autism, intellectual impairment, severe speech delay. But for every one of those children, there's another four who are at risk that the teacher identifies. And I'm always fascinated by how closely it maps with what paediatricians are seeing uh, in outpatient settings. The bad bit of the story is that some of our clinics have an 18 month, two year wait. That's if you know how to navigate the system. A private paediatrician can cost up to $500 for an appointment. And we know that the report showed that uh, of children with mental health conditions meeting criteria, less than a quarter of them saw a paediatrician. The most likely practitioner that they saw was a general practitioner, but it was only at 35% and 7% uh, of them saw a child psychiatrist. The model that we're, we've been running and Rachel did a lot of co-consultation with a lot of work from people within the community around what it would look like was really has three tiers to it. The first tier was looking at how can we improve the community health literacy? And we did that through health sessions. It was actually a lot of fun. So we got to go out and do um, 
sessions for two hours of me speaking, which I thought no one's going to listen to, but in uh, some footy clubs and primary schools and, and different venues. And we always made sure that we invited in uh, local clinicians and health professionals, um, educators, family service providers to speak as well around some of the common things that we see in clinics so that parents could feel a bit, a bit better supported. The second tier is a seminar program, which we have on a fortnightly basis. We've stolen a fair bit off Project Echo about that, which is really looking at how can we use cases in a shared learning environment for all of us to get better. The priority of the whole project is to keep families in their community by understanding that there's so much expertise within the professionals that support families. And often they just need a little bit uh, of reinforcement or communication that's a little bit easier to access to make sure that those families can continue to stay in their community. The third tier is this amazing co-consultation model where within two weeks, we can have a shared consult with anyone who refers to us, a general practitioner, an allied health member, an educator, a family service worker. What's amazing about it is that the referral comes in warm. We often have a chat on the phone or email about what's going on. We meet the family together. So a lot of the vulnerable families have got a trusted relationship with the, um, you know, the family that might have had a really negative experience going through family services or the system. And then we look at um, what time works for them. We meet together and the consult happens together. This doesn't happen anywhere else I practice. We send, you know, these archaic letters to each other. This is in real time talking about how we can best support the family and what the concerns are. And then we've got someone who's going to, you know, really support the family and what the management strategy was, keep us in touch and really actively engage in the follow-up. I don't know if anyone's got any comments on this model, but we've we've um, we started with the maternal child health nurses because they were seen as a real coalface worker with families with a high, especially in the early years, a high engagement rate with all families in the community. And in um, regional Victoria, they often go well beyond their job description to support families because there's a real lack of um, of services but we're really looking at how we can bring in uh, proactively all people that support families. And we've started to see this happening with our co-consults um, and really slowly with our case-based learning sessions. But um, yeah, it's, it's been really great to see this uh, different approach to things. The um, community health sessions were put on hold a little bit because of COVID. This model was never planned with COVID in mind, but it's really thrived because of it. We actually, uh, I think it was yesterday, my days are all rolling into one, or no, maybe it was early in the week, we did a, um, a toileting session because three-year-old kinder getting rolled out in the area has been identified as a, a really great opportunity, but there is some concern around rest time and toileting for those preschoolers. So we did a session with uh, educators. We're doing another one at the end of this week, and next week we're doing one with parents just to support them around that. Um, this is, this is in NIL, uh, I think it's the footy club, and it's Tara Dodds, one of the speech pathologists, and her and I spoke uh, to the community about childhood development and wellbeing. It's a really great session, um, and it, it's really generated our thinking around how we can best support families in the region and understand what their needs are. In terms of our community health sessions, we got to do six of them before everything shut down but we've just talked about the, the webinar we're running currently. Those topics are selected by the community. And if I'm 100% honest, when I heard the first one was going to be toileting, I was a little bit disappointed, but I actually really enjoyed it. Um, 
And then our case-based learning topics are selected by the practitioners in the community that participate. Those are our topics that we've covered so far. Um, there's really great engagement in that as well. And we often have people coming in. We have one later today on skin lesions. Um, and we've got uh, the person who leads the pediatric skin clinic, the consultant at the Royal Children's Hospital will be joining me along with two dermatology nurse practitioners, which will be really fantastic. The co-consultations, we're probably over 80 now um, with all of the supports in place. And they're the common presentations that we're seeing. Uh, I remember right at the start of it, I was referred uh, to children both around two years of age with short stature, and I, I kept mixing them up in my head. But it's been a really interesting caseload um, of seeing. And I remember one of the maternal child health nurses asked me a question once, you know, are we sending in soft referrals? And we just haven't seen that. We've seen that they're just used to holding a lot of these families, and I suspect GPs in the region are the same. This is not a, this photo is, is of one of our co-consults, uh, not the child that I'm presenting as a case, but I think it's a great photo that got up in one of the local papers demonstrating maternal child health nurse, a mum and the child. And you can see on the screen, there's, there's actually me, a general practitioner and three uh, maternal child health nurses also zooming into the session. So really amazing to think that that family is at the centre of that practice, but we've got essentially five health professionals uh, coming in to support that mum who was experiencing a pretty significant level uh, of burden secondary to some of the struggles that her daughter was having. The case I'd like to present is a little three-year-old boy that I was referred by an occupational therapist in the region for behavioural concerns uh, relating to social and emotional development and sensory processing. He was first referred to a psychologist and the psychologist quickly said, I think you need to see an occupational therapist. This amazing OT had had a number of sessions and said, look, I think this is, we need more help and had heard about the program. Within two weeks, we had a co-consult um, and this, this little boy was um, really at the severe end of the spectrum in terms of functioning. He, I might open it up as a case, but he, um, he essentially came to me with uh, being unable to physically separate from his mum. So his mum couldn't even go and do the washing without taking him with her, put the washing on the line, was unable to really leave the house. Uh, at the start of this year, they had a shot at him attending uh, childcare, uh, a daycare setting, and he lasted about an hour before he had a really big uh, emotional meltdown and had to be picked up. And he hasn't really been able to leave mum's side since then. The family just moved into the region, so they were new to the area. The only real interesting part about his uh, previous developmental and medical history was at about 12 months of age, he was noticed to be quite elevated with a lot of kind of externalising behaviour, a lot of screaming, um, really vocalising a lot and becoming quite worked up and not even always distressed, but just a lot of energy. But um, yeah, and there was a six-year-old child in the family as well who all mum, dad and the six-year-old were really struggling with, um, with this child's um, functional impact on the family. Does anyone have any questions about that case? Is that something you guys are seeing? Like what would you, what would the first steps be? I'd love to hear any advice around this little one because um, he's been really interesting to get to know and support the family. But I just wonder if anyone has any questions. So that concludes the panel presentation for this session. We'll bring you any other snippets that we can, but come along and join the discussion next week. 
Uh, over to you, Linda Govan. So Linda Govan um, is coming to us to give us a quick update on cancer screening. Um, and this will launch our um, next session where we're going to talk about, well, what can be done about it. So thanks, uh, over to you, Linda. Thanks, Bianca. Good morning, everybody. Hope you can hear me okay. Um, so this is really just a snapshot. I reckon I've got three or four minutes to go through these slides. Um, so we've got some new data that's come out looking at the um, impact of COVID-19 on cancer diagnosis, and I thought I'd just give you a bit of a bit of a taste of what that's looking like. Um, the Victoria Cancer Registry, they've looked at data between March and June of this year, and they're reporting an overall reduction of about 30% in the five most common cancers. So that's colorectal, prostate, breast, melanoma, and lung, and with a greater reduction seen in head and neck cancer. Um, they're also, they've identified that those reductions are really in the 50 to 74 and over 74 age groups. Um, I look at some of the MBS data um, showing between 25 to 33% fewer cancer tests, so in melanoma, breast and colorectal, 25% fewer melanoma excisions, 25% um, uh, less specialist consults. And as we know, a rapid adoption of telehealth, but actually a limited uptake of video consults. And just in the slides there, I've got um, links to some of that data if you want to go back and have a look at that. Uh, next slide. Thanks, Gemma. Um, the impact on the national screening programs, uh, as you know, uh, Breast Screen Australia had, uh, or Breast Screen programs were temporarily closed earlier in the pandemic. So they've had probably the most obvious impact. So compared to two years ago, there's been 145,000 fewer screening mammograms conducted between January and June this year compared to two years ago. In regards to the National Cervical Screening Program, it's, um, they're finding it harder. They expected a drop in screening rates um, because of the change from the two to five yearly screening um, protocols. So they need more time and data to determine the impact on that. And the same for the National Bowel Cancer Screening Program, lower screening rates, um, yes, but it doesn't coincide with COVID timelines at the moment. Although anecdotally, I have heard that um, bowel cancer screening rates haven't really dropped off um, because the kit, you can do it at home, so it's not um, dependent on having to see a health practitioner. Next slide, thanks. So I guess the key message there around the data is that they expect to see a surge in cancer diagnoses. And then when people present, the, um, they'll be uh, further on in their disease. So there's going to be a greater cancer burden and an, an, an increased number of diagnosed cancers. So Cancer Australia have put together a number of strategies um, that we can look to as we move into this recovery period. And I just wanted to highlight, um, these are in regards to the cancer screening programs and early detection from a practitioner level, what can you do? And um, they talk about encouraging patients to participate in population screening programs and promote the importance of early detection, encourage face-to-face -face consultations where appropriate to investigate red flag symptoms, so get people in face-to-face -face and see them, adopt a systematic approach, so both with opportunistic and targeted strategies. And that really means having a look at your practice data, um, tightening up your reminders and recalls, having a look at the QIPIP as well, and also using resources that support patients' health literacy. And that an, an example of that is GoShare. Um, next slide, Emma, or Gemma, thanks. Okay, so what's West Vic PHN doing in this region or in this area? At the moment, we've got um, an expression of interest out for Cancer Screening Quality Improvement Grant. We've got six available at the moment. It does close tomorrow um, and it's been sent out. It's a targeted expression of interest process. So it's been sent 
across the region but to areas with low um, low screening rates. So you may or may not have received an invite to participate. If we don't have enough um, applicants by tomorrow, I'll be opening that up and you will receive some more information about that. Um, the Patchen is also involved as a co-investigator with the University of Melbourne on a project called Smart Screen. It's a randomised control trial looking uh, working in general practice and using the GoShare platform to send patients information and to prompt them to participate in the National Bowel Cancer Screening Program. Um, 20 general practices in our region will be involved. There'll be 10 in the intervention arm and 10 in the control arm, and that, that activity will kick off early next year. Um, and finally, I guess around the business as usual for the PHN, just um, tapping into the practice facilitation support. So um, getting support around the cervical screening quality improvement um, measure, which is the, um, looking at the proportion of female patients with an up-to-date cervical screening. You can contact your practice facilitator using that email or just speak to your practice manager and they'll know who to get in touch with. And we've also got a lot of tools and resources on our website around cancer screening, um, which feeds off some work we've been doing over the last three years. So we've got some really good up-to-date resources. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to go back to in regards to the expression of interest, when we kick that project off next year as well in February, we will have a, a community of practice around cancer screening and everybody will be invited to participate in that as well and we'll have some echo sessions as well and that's Wonderful. it thanks so much linda well we'll see you hopefully next week to um yeah get get a little deeper into the theme of cancer screening and i'll um to be announced uh, our presenters for next week deb i'm sorry i'm throwing to you now and i think you've probably got a few questions no it's fine thank you um so very quickly um, eye protection is still a requirement at this time. We're hoping that we'll get that changed in the next iteration of PPE guidelines for regional Victoria. But at this time, eye protection is still recommended in addition to a surgical mask. The risk in outdoor gatherings, we actually don't have any data on that because we've been shut down in Australia. Supermarkets pose a very negligible risk. Swimming pools, the risk is probably low because of the chlorine. Um, and so hydrotherapy hopefully will be opening up now. There's been a fairly low uptake of the $450 test support payment that was based on a state meeting that I went to yesterday. Unclear why that is, but there's been a low uptake of that. Um, fit testing is progressing at um, Victorian hospitals and it, it, it's required to be on board by the end of this month of sort of fit testing programs. So it's all progressing now. The Northern has done, I think, thousands of people already as, as have a few other hospitals um, and then in terms of household transmission we already have many things in place such as offering hotel quarantine to people to move them out of the household because the risk is high in terms of face encounters Shantini's question was similar do you need a face shield so some form of eye protection whether it be goggles glasses or face shield in addition to a surgical mask how much does humidity play a role in less spread? We talked about this last week. There's less, it probably spreads less well the more humid the temperature, but that doesn't change the fact that all the other measures are still important and that that won't account for our success in total. It would have to be lots of other measures. And um, I think that's all I've got time for. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much, Deb. All right, we'll see you next week, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for everyone, uh, to everyone, to all our contributors and participants. Um, great session. Um, thank you very much. We'll see you next week. Take it easy. This series was brought to you by the West Vic PHN. 
I'm Bianca Forrester and I'm the GP facilitator for this series. I'd like to acknowledge the work of Gemma Misbach, Natalie Love, Fiona Quigley, Matt Dixon and Kate Graham for their work in coordination, support and contribution to this series. These audio catch-ups are produced by Gemma Misbach, myself and Jade Buller. Come along and join the discussions on Thursday mornings at 7.30am via Zoom. You can register on the West Vic PHN website by looking up Project Echo COVID-19. All sessions are RACGP and ACRAM accredited as a time-based activity and CPD certificates are available for non-GP participants. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.